This week's episode of Please Blow My Mind is brought to you by Float Culture. Have you ever thought about floating? Do you know what floating is? Well, it's exactly what the name is. You float. You connect with your mind by blocking out the rest of the world. Think about floating in 30 centimetres of water in pitch black. You're weightless. Your gravitational pull is zero. Your mind takes over. Space, time, all become an illusion. Float culture is where it's at. I took my first float this week at Float Culture and it was amazing. You walk in, it's very clean, it's very nice. You drink a nice kava, which is a traditional Pacific Island drink. Makes your tongue go a bit tingly, makes your mind go a bit awesome. Then I went into the room, had a nice shower. I don't want to get too graphic, but it was just time with myself. Went in the tank, the music went on, the lights went off, the music went off. The rest, as they say, is mind-blowing. Get yourself afloat sooner than later. Floatculture.co.nz Boom! Now we're into the podcast. I'm so excited to bring you this week's guest. If it's your first time here at Please Blow My Mind, welcome, peace. Uh, it's awesome to have you joining the journey uh, my name's Will Fleming, I'm your podcast host. I'm trying to blow our minds, I'm trying to blow my mind by talking to people who have a mind-blowing outlook on life. And it's that simple. I feel like too much is oversimplified in today's world. And I'm doing something about it. I'm having deep, thoughtful conversations with interesting people to help shake us from this... Uh, I don't know, it's like a chicken nugget. It's, it's formulated chemical something made into what they call food and it's like that we're like that in real life you know it's like no don't conform us don't put us in these tight little boxes let us be the actual chicken all right not just some ground up gunk and called a human you know we're more than that so i'm trying to get us back to some authentic type of content and i mean i'm not the only one doing this but it's fun it's it's a it's a worthy journey and i'm happy that you're coming along for the journey with me us little community mind blowers community okay so the guest this week mike Orsop. who 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 take a seat for this one because mike Orsop is an interesting dude he's climbed everest he's run marathons like seven and seven days he survived a plane crash i don't think i need any more build-up it's a super interesting conversation with a super interesting human and I just am keen to get into it. So thank you everybody for joining the journey and yeah, let's roll. Let's get our minds blowing. We live in a world that encourages us to remove ourselves from the human experience, whether it's looking at our phones too long, forgetting how to talk to someone face to face, or just straight up giving in and convincing ourselves that a chicken nugget is actual food. It's not food, it's silence. I don't know about you, but this freaks me out. So I've started a podcast, my antidote to this silliness. It's time to blow our minds. My name is Will Fleming, welcome to my podcast, Please Blow My Mind. And boom, here we go, Mike Orsop joining me in my uh, laundry, aka Dad Studio, aka, um, I don't know, have you got one of these, have you got a man cave? Uh, oh yeah, sort of, but it's filled with the pool pump and uh, <laughs> and an old fridge and uh, some broken down shelves, it's my man cave. It's funny, eh, it's like, uh, 
so much happens in the garage yet it's an area where we don't really present to the public I feel like it's a little bit like uh, this podcast you know I I try to present something professional Um, maybe you do too maybe a lot of us do but at the end of the day there's always that kind of one cupboard or the garage that you know you got to have somewhere to hold the junk and uh, (laughs) I, I don't know I feel like you know we're not really encouraged anymore I was talking to my niece and she's starting uni next year you know and she was telling me all the benefits and the KPIs behind studying and and um, going to the halls and you know she'll get motivated from her friends and I said you know you're allowed to have fun too you know you don't have to have everything perfect and and uh, I don't know man it just feels like there's a bit of anxiety about trying to line everything up perfect do you kind of get that sense that you know where yes and no but then it depends what you focus on I don't I don't worry about it so for me personally I just do what I what makes me happy. What do you makes th- my family happy? Yeah, but do you think we'd be like that if we grew up with social media and like kind of projecting a side of ourselves? Yeah, I'm not sure about the whole social media thing. It's <laughs> yeah. it's very um, you know I'm obviously on it. I have um, Instagram. I've got a, a nice uh, good following on Instagram, and I, mm. I enjoy it. But um, yeah, I'm not trying to be anyone but myself yeah. on social media, and that's I think a big thing is people try and do things. And the other thing, especially with social media at the moment, is my kids. Mm. Um, they stop doing it, but the other other friends of theirs do uh, dumb things right. to get people to like them, mm. and then that can get worse, bigger and bigger and bigger. True. And then they might be jumping off a roof into a swimming pool one day and have a massive accident. Yeah, that's what worries me about social media, dude. And it's something that um, you know, if you're in it, it kind of makes sense, I guess. You know, you got to go bigger and bolder and try and do stuff and 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 be noticed, but. You know, you forget, you know, um, I do some camera work and you look through the viewfinder and sometimes I forget that maybe I'm in a dis- you know, dangerous situation or on the road or I guess it's just one of those things, you know, that uh, uh, maybe it's just our brain can't kind of differentiate the two, you know, like. Well, the other thing is a rose-tinted lens as well because everything on true. social media is uh, people's uh, best day and they're trying to make themselves look really good. No mm. one puts their, their really bad days, well, a few do. Mm. Um, you know, so there's this completely, uh, in some ways, I wouldn't say a false life, but a, a certainly altered life that mm. people look through this lens of um, in social media, which is... Um, and I mean, I'm I'm responsible for it too. I don't post <laughs> photographs of myself when I get out of bed in the morning. You know, Maybe we should do that. You know, it's like that would probably go viral. I don't even know what that means. Viral used to be a negative connotation, didn't it? Yeah, true. Like a viral thing. <laughs> um, so you're a bit of an adventurer. You get out there. You do different things. You're kind of like the antidote to social media. Like you know, people look for the perfect Instagram photo. You've got those, but you've captured them in your mind. You know, you've been to some amazing places, done some amazing things. Like you climbed Everest, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so I climbed Everest wow. um, about well, oh, ten years ago now. Wow. So, um, but that's that was really cool. It was it was amazing, and I've done some really cool things. Mm. But I think my motivation behind it is I've always wanted to sit in my rocking chair and look back on my life and say, hey, I made a made a good go of it whatever that might be Mm. you know we've all got our own Everest inside of us and we've Mm. all got different goals and different different stuff and just recently I've been doing some work um, with you know improving my keynote speaking and this sort of stuff and I was doing a bit of research and I found a study by a guy called Dr. Tony Campolo Mm -hmm. you heard of this guy? No. So he asked 95 year olds what they would do to again if they were going to repeat their life or what they'd do differently and there's a few different answers but um, the three that came out majorly were one they'd take more risk Mm. 
and we'll talk about that in a second. Second is they would take more time to reflect, and the third is leave a legacy. Right. That's not a Subaru legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Even though that's a solid goal to have. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So break those down again. What are the three? So first of all, they would take more risk. Yep. As in doing things, trying more things, taking a risk. I mean, without risk, there's no achievement. Yes. You know, and the other thing is with risk, you know, your adventure, for example, for me, adventure starts at the end of your comfort zone. Mm. So so I really push my comfort zone with Everest, but now, and it changes. So life has changed because my children have come along and are growing up. And so my risk level has certainly changed, mm. but I still take risks. So and what I mean by risks is astute, really thought out risks like taking my oldest boy up Kilimanjaro mm. that's a risk you know the chance of getting hurt are quite remote but it's uh, it's very um, you know it was a risk to put yourself out there and to save the money and to mm. organise the trip that sort of thing yeah. and this is what these people um, in their you know, twilight years of their life at 95 were saying that they w- wish they had taken more risks you know go and ask that person out go and mm. you know take a risk on buying whatever they wanted to buy a house or a boat or do you think anyone's cracked the I guess what I'm trying to kind of work through in real time is if you learn a lesson you can use that you know something horrible happens to you you remember it you know you grow from it you learn from it does like taking a risk do you have to kind of um, I guess it's a, like a leap of faith sometimes isn't it and and it just seems at sometimes you know the majority of us feel like that's the wrong thing yeah. to do and I, I'm just trying to work out has anyone cracked it you know like I understand you're saying um, like don't smoke don't overeat you know, nutri- <laughs> you know get some good nutrition um, take risks but in practice what are the steps you know is it something like uh, one thing risky but a small thing and then build up on that you know like you wouldn't go out and run a marathon your first day you might yeah. just do five sit-ups or something yeah it just seems like we don't break it we give you the solution and then everyone's like great i gotta f- take a risk uh now what but the more so it's, it's baby steps so mm. the more you, you the more you do and the more risks you take the the better and you know and, and the more lessons you learn the better yeah. i mean in a way you know I, I say in some of my talks uh once you've achieved something you thought was impossible, so once you've, say, run your first marathon or mm. first half marathon, you actually develop a whole new set of beliefs inside you, and those beliefs allow you to go on and to achieve greater and greater things. Yes. So it's like building blocks, and, and away you go. You don't go straight from zero to running your first marathon. Yeah. You know, you've got to build it up. But once you've run the first marathon, you know, then you've got this whole, and they're personal beliefs inside you that that allow you to go, hey, maybe I could go and run a marathon over here, or mm. maybe I should try and qualify for Boston, or, mm. you know, so it is slow steps. And the other thing is we make mistakes, but the best learnings in my life are from my mistakes. Yeah. But they don't have to be your mistakes, they can mm. be other people's. So yep. on Everest, I actually wrote down, I read uh, so many books on Everest mm. and I wrote down in the back of these books why people failed. Mm-hmm. And so I could learn from their mistakes yeah. and they were just as powerful. Wow. What was it like on Everest, man? Like not the version that you tell everyone. Were you like, was it scary? 
<laughs> like you know what I mean. Like, and bit, how long? Yeah. I want to know a couple of things. Like, how do you take a dump? Because <laughs> you know, it's like talking to an astronaut too. You know, there's some kind of things that we don't know. Like, I guess everything is harder there. Yeah, it is. But the it is harder, and you spend a lot of time making sure all your gears right. Mm. But then again, you spend. Yeah, you're probably on on Everest for probably two months. I mean, I, what did I, when did I get there? I got there at about beginning of April, and I left the end of May. Yeah, wow. and you know, you're spending a, there's a lot of downtime, and you're perfecting all your gear, and you're getting mm. to know everything, so you know all your stuff. It might look from an outsider that it's just overwhelming because there's hundreds of pieces of gear, but you know, you know boots and mm. and you know down jackets and that, but you know it all. Mm. And then as for having a dump, it's really easy. <laughs> okay. You just wait until you're absolutely. <laughs> dying to go <laughs> yeah. and then it's that's you don't care <laughs> yeah. that's great that's that's the key yeah and is it okay not getting too much here because you know far out i didn't plan on this but maybe i should plan not to talk about this it's just like you know do you go outside and just find somewhere oh no 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 so okay so the nepalese are really smart they're really awesome and the, uh, probably a, oh, a decade ago maybe 15 years ago they mm. sent all their national park people to new zealand mm-hmm. and they did um national park degrees and how to manage their parks wow. and so you pay a ten thousand us dollar bond yep. uh, on everest or your team does yep. and then you have to go to the toilet in the in a barrel mm. and then if they catch you going to the toilet anywhere else um then it is uh you lose your your rubbish bond you wow. lose your bond so there's no so you get to base camp now and you know 10 years ago you used to walk into the ice fall and find a, you know, a bit of rubbish mm. now you're looking for rubbish because it's old artifacts yep. so you True. know the, from 50 years ago, people would have dumped stuff at the top of the ice fall. It's coming out the bottom now. And so you, you go around looking for things mm. like that. Is it true that uh, it's really hard to like retrieve a body from there? Like, Do you see people who weren't successful? Um, yeah. Is that that's even a, that's okay the thing to talk that about? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a, that's one. The, um, yes, there you do. But what happens is they can't bring at altitude probably above 8,000 metres. Mm. It's really hard to bring someone down. Because you're literally just taking, you know, one or two steps at a time, and then you have to, re, uh, you know, rest and breathe. Mm. You're on oxygen. You're just managing to look after yourself. So trying to re- uh, retrieve a sort of sixty or hundred kilo um, dead weight is really, oh, really difficult. Man. The Koreans lost a very famous um, or well-known climber on the north side of Everest, mm. and they uh, took a whole team back. Uh, to go and retrieve his body, and they and they had, you know, saws and all sorts to get him out of the snow and the ice, and they were there for a couple of hours. He was at about eight thousand three hundred meters, and mm. they were there for a couple of hours, and they gave up. They couldn't get him. That's crazy. Um, just trying to think about the stuff people maybe don't ask you. So, you know, you do this amazing climb, you get there. I imagine you know a hundred things are going through your head when you reach the top. Is that true, or are you just buggered? No, I was, uh, well, it's two things. One, I, you've got your conscious mind, mm. and your conscious mind is the part that, you know, um, does stuff consciously, obviously. Yeah. And your subconscious mind mm-hmm. is the part that you can't control, that beats your heart, and, you know, when you cut yourself, it heals your body, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Now, the subconscious mind is 200 million, they don't even know how many times more powerful than conscious mind. Wow. The best thing about the subconscious mind, it doesn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. Hmm. So I'd been telling myself for quite a long time I was going from camp four all the way to the summit and all the way down to base camp. It's impossible. No one's ever done it. Not even a Sherpa's done it. True. So when I got to the summit, I had good energy because a lot of people get there and collapse. 
um, I had a lot of energy because my subconscious mind thought I was going all the way down to base camp. Wow. And then when I got back to camp four, I had a lot of uh, really good energy levels as well because subconsciously I thought my body thought it had to go all the way down to, um, down to base camp. Wow. So when I got to the summit, I had an accident just before the summit where I'd run out of oxygen and I started drifting in and out of consciousness. Dude. And that's when my Sherpa saved my life, Lakpa saved my life. So... Once I got that auction sorted out, uh, I was just conscious of the danger. Mm. So it wasn't a real celebration. It was yeah. get to the top, take a couple of photos, have a look around. Uh, I rang my wife from the summit, and then it was just get out of there because I knew most people get killed on the way down. Far out. Um, so you do all this stuff, right? And is it fun coming home or is it sad leaving? I'm just thinking, you know, you come back and it's like you've, uh, my father used to tell me stories of his dad in war and, you know, he came home and it was like a bit boring and they didn't have as much meaning, you know, like there's not much more meaning than trying to survive in a unsurvivable area. Yeah. And then you come back to where everyone's kind of, you know, fat and a bit lazy and you know what I mean? <laughs> like maybe not everyone just speaking about, you know, this guy here, but, uh, I guess we're just struggling for a bit of meaning, which is also what this podcast is about. It's like, how do you find meaning, which there is lots of it, um, in, when you don't have to be on Everest? Like, what were those emotions like? Yeah, the... Um, I know, it'd be interesting to interview my wife about it. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, obviously there was going to be a down mm. phase when you come back. But what I did is I changed my focus because a lot of people wanted to talk to me, particularly mm. schools. Right. And so I, True. so what I did is I changed the focus uh, to giving to others. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is um, go and talk to schools. Yeah. And there's a guy called Lama Gershi. He passed away in February, sadly. But he, as the local Lama, he's like the Dalai Lama, mm -hmm. and he said to me, Mike, if everyone just gives a little bit more than they take, the world's a much better place. Yeah. So I would then go and talk to schools for free, travel around, and that way that was quite interesting, quite exciting. And then you're giving to someone else, and Everest has turned in from just this personal thing mm. for me to actually giving to other people, which is really cool. Yeah. Wow, it's a um, it's way deeper than we kind of give all that stuff credit for, eh? We just probably think, you know, most people think, you know, that's just a bucket list thing, you know, that's even yeah. a thing now. We'll, we'll climb Everest, and or we'll do this, and we'll get a photo from here, but there's kind of so many other things. And, you know, the more I kind of analyze this, this life we live, and I don't want to get too deep, but I kind of do, because, you know, we don't get that deep that often. It seems simple at a surface level, but if you look a little bit deeper, there's all these things like give a little bit more and and you know um, kind of the yin and yang of everything. You know, it's like this funny thing, and I don't know why. I don't know why we have these thoughts. You know, why do you think we have the subconscious and the conscious? Is that kind of like have you ever broken it down? I mean, obviously it helped you, you know, in those moments. And I'm just trying to work out like what's the point. I think it's the way we're it's the way we're built. It's mm. the way we're wired, and I think mm. you've got to be careful of the little voice in your head that right. tells you the negative stuff. Mm. You know, it's really because if you go over it too much in in your head ne uh, negatively, mm. you know, your subconscious, like I said before, doesn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. So it's going to believe that you're useless. Yeah, it's going to believe that you're no good. So. You know, even if you are no good, and even if you are a bit useless in that moment, mm. don't keep telling yourself you True, are. True, eh? You know, if you if you say that you're, you know, if you repeat over and over again that you're that you're a winner, that you're you're mm. doing good stuff, and you're you're awesome, 
just to yourself, don't say to anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, you subconsciously you'll believe it. Yeah. You know, there's the book Power of Now, and mm. that talks about you know the you know thinking positively and the and the power of the the universe, and that's mm. that's an amazing book. Maybe that's the thing with social media is that it talks to our unconscious. You know, it's not like a conscious thing. We think it is because you're physically typing away, but maybe it's the comments and stuff. It's getting stored somewhere, and you know, it's a we've been around a long time humans eh? and this social stuff is this connectivity to the world is reasonably new you know mm. probably social media like 10 years or so where you really have unlocked um communication with a large audience potentially you know millions of people as opposed to these little tribes and stuff that we maybe came up through um so it's not just climbing you also did like something like seven marathons in seven days is that damn man like are you you're keen on punishment then (laughs) (laughs) what's the deal how do you come do you just like are you sitting there one day having you know a bit of fish and chips and you're like hmm well, it comes back to that risk. So mm. I, I, adventuring was in my blood, and I realised that after Everest, that that risk was unacceptable, especially right. when you've got children. True. So, so you wouldn't do it again? No. Okay. No, we're not with kids. Yeah. Once my kids are older, mm. uh, yes, I would do it again. But uh, my wife's pretty cool. She'll probably tell me to pull my head in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was the story? You took your daughter to do like water skiing or something at somewhere really high? Oh, no. So um, every time one of my kids turned seven, mm. they uh, got to go and see Everest with me. So I took them to Everest. Right. And had a, a number of things. One, it was really awesome for them. It mm. was a tradition, a family tradition. Wicked. And it doesn't have to be something massive mm. like that because it costs a bit of money. Yeah. Um, it can be... Anything, but mm. they hit that. There's this tradition that when they turn seven, they get to go with dad and they get to go and do this. Mm. And so, for me, it was um, Everest, and I took them up to oh, probably about um, third of the way to base camp, and mm-hmm. we could see Everest together. But what that did is we stayed with the Sherpas, um, stayed with my Sherpa friends, and it opened them up to a whole new community mm. and a whole new um, culture. It was just fantastic. So, each of them turned when they did that uh, when they were seven, and then when they're 14, they get to choose another adventure themselves with dad one-on-one again uh just a family tradition uh and my daughter wanted to go to base camp right and i was running teams expeditions to base camp Mm. so i said to her you're gonna do it um because i know you've you've been there before i know what you like so let's it's got to have three elements to it one it's got to be super hard it's got to be something you don't think you can do yeah it's got to push your limits you have to be you have to not be afraid to fail Hmm. Number two, it's got to be safe, so Wendy's got to approve it. And number three, it has to be good for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So she said, well, so we went back and she started dreaming of ideas, and we came up with an idea of taking two stand-up paddle boards mm. to Everest Base Camp. Right. <laughs> yeah, So and then to find a lake and to try and uh, you know, do the world's highest stand-up paddle. Awesome. Sherpas thought we were crazy. Yeah. You've got these yaks with these, these big inflatable boards on them. Yeah. And she did. We got all the way to base camp. We didn't know whether we could do this until probably five minutes before we got to the lake because we didn't know whether it was frozen or whether we could access the lake. Wow. So you're like lugging all this stuff around. Yep. Pumps. And that, that brings it back to one of my big things is I think a lot of people, including myself, we're, you know, we're afraid to fail. Mm. And if... If you think about it, failure has probably, you know, the fear of failure has probably killed more dreams than failure actually has. Yeah. And when you really think about it, not trying is really the only failure. Dude, that's like right on the money, eh? And I just, it's kind of like, uh, I was thinking, you know, I was like, what are you going to do today? And 
I guess that's the burden of our own lives, you know, we've got to work that out for ourselves, there is no one-stop shop, but, you know, I guess it's, um, and some of it gets into a bit of feeling, right, like, you got to feel your way through this instead of just logically making the decision, uh, but I, I kind of think it gets a little bit freaky and woo-woo, because I would rather follow a list, but, for example, when someone says, what's your dream job, no one's got the same answer, and some of the ways we kind of work through that is, well, can you do it for hours without, you know, hating it? Yes. What does that mean? You know, what are we doing in that moment? And I think we're just, it feels good or, you know, it feels right. But again, it's kind of like, yeah, you, I think a brave person to um, have it on lockdown and say, this is what you need to do to be happy, you know. <laughs> exactly. I, I just hope that, you know, we talk about this stuff and people have stories and, and we can take that into our lives. And, you know, you mentioned something, dream and imagine. And um, it's funny because if you do that as an adult, people kind of think you're a bit weird, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, yes, yes and no. Like, so I, mm. I have three things I do. You know, I first one is I let myself dream. And then what I've been, and I've slowly been refining this idea to mm. try and explain it properly. I sort of call it uh, filling the funnel. So I have a, a, a funnel and mm-hmm. I put heaps of ideas into mm-hmm. it in my head, read books, go online, look at everything, and you put all the stuff. You don't have to set a goal straight away. Mm. And then it sort of becomes more and more focused and you reflect it on it a bit more. And then out the bottom pops out your what you're really passionate about true and but without having the courage to dream or courage to to fill that funnel with all of these ideas mm. you might not find it mm. um because it changes all the time and it it's um it morphs and then your you know golden nugget which you really really want to do might uh, be out there and you would never have actually achieved mm. it unless you've gone through the process then once i've done that and i know what i really want want to do then i build a plan that I can see so I get a whiteboard or a wall yeah. and I, I put my goal on it when I write down what I want to do like Kilimanjaro mm. and then I break it down to tiny little parts and then I break those smaller and smaller and and everyone gets overwhelmed so when you get overwhelmed you have you can just start at a tiny little bit and then like for example for me I have um uh, say courage and compassion yep. and then I might break that down how am I going to get it read some books or watch a YouTube video mm. so I might put on a YouTube video and watch it or listen to a podcast and then you know something happens you, you take another step and yep. you find momentum and then you're off True, that, and it really works really well yeah momentum that's an interesting one uh, we're going to take a short little break so I can um, pay some bills not really but uh just quickly, I want to show you an advert for floatculture.co.nz. I was asking Mike before we started recording, you haven't done a float yet. No. But we're going to do one. Not awesome. together. Because, you know, <laughs> well, you could if you really wanted to, but I'd rather take my wife. Um, so check out this advert for Float Culture. If you haven't had a float yet, you should. It's uh, been described as kind of like, you know, easy way to meditate and go really deep really fast because you turn off everything else in the world and it's really interesting if you think about it we never do that uh our whole world is bombarded with messages you know so yeah we'll see you in just a second and then we'll talk a bit more about momentum i want to talk to you about a a crazy plane crash you had and i think that'll do for uh one session okay we think life is about having the latest phone self-driving car, a fat-free, carefree, think-free living, trying to explain the complexity of the world in about 140 characters. Guess what? 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 Life is way deeper than that. 
To understand what we need as humans and how deep the human hole goes, we need to look inwards. We need to look at floating as a way to cut everything out, turn off the machine, and be with nothing. That's better. Now let's start this baby on. Engines, three, two, one, up and away. You see, life is busy, but floating gives us a super-powered, hyper-charged connection with our mind that can relieve stress by simply doing nothing. If you want to explore your mind and the float culture of New Zealand, then jump onto floatculture.co.nz and book your float today. That's floatculture.co.nz. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So, uh, go get yourself a float, floatculture.co.nz. How did I sound, Mike? Did you think, do you think I've got a future in like um, working for those housing adverts? Oh, mate, you'll be great. Thanks. You'll be great. Know. I'm going to go and do a float. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to hook you up for free. Um, okay, so momentum. That's an interesting thing we talked about just before the break. And um, it's quite self-explanatory momentum, isn't it? Because it's assume, it's like a, a plane taking off. You're stationary and you've got to get a bit of grunt behind it. And you got to like all the workers actually getting up, right? And so, um, is that something you kind of think about in terms of how you make sure your momentum is is continuing? Or yeah, the um, so there's a really cool uh, app called Eat That Frog. Have you heard of that? No. Yeah, so it's called by Brian Tracy, and it's only a couple of bucks. You can get it on cool. um, on your phone. Yeah. And it's a way to achieve things. And he talks about momentum as well. Mm. But he talks about um, if you are having, you write down all the things you have to do for a day, for example, and yep. then you do the hardest one first. Mm. And you imagine it's a little tiny green frog, and the longer, and you've got to eat it. And the longer you look at it, the harder it's going to be. So you just get stuck in. And once wow. you've got, once you've done something, this is two ways of doing it. Once mm. you've got stuck in and achieved something you know, quite hard for your day, your first day, it might be an email. It might be ringing the IRD that you don't want to ring, you know. Mm. Then your adrenaline goes up a little bit, your endorphins go up, and then, boom, you start doing a whole heap of things. Yeah. The other thing with momentum, I'm writing a second book. Cool. And I find that I stuff around most of the day, and there's only really maybe one or two hours which I really get stuck in and do a lot of writing and I struggle with with um, getting to that place quite quickly which I can't I sort of stuff around because I've got kids and then <laughs> yeah. clean the house and yeah. got a new dog. And, yeah. yeah. No, it's funny. Eh? It's like you would think the most important things or things that, you know, have maximum return should, you know, have the most resource and time. But the more I kind of dabble into different areas, the more I don't see that happening. You know, like I, I made this video for a client and the bulk of it was a whole day shoot and the bulk of it is 30 seconds of me filming this one moment. And I'm like, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous that the bulk of this video that will see, be seen by thousands of people, I've given myself a 30-second window in the day or one minute to capture that. What the hell was I doing for the rest of the day? I suppose it's like Everest. It's, yeah. it's, you've got, you know, you got <laughs> 10 years of work and mm. then you've got uh, 17 minutes standing on the summit. Right. Maybe that's the, that's the learning is that you, know, you might only have that little bit of time and you've got to really make it count, which kind of makes sense, or I guess. you have to enjoy the journey to get there because yeah. that tiny little bit at the top, like I found out, I was scared, mm. really scared yeah. on the summit. So you have to enjoy the whole process and the mm. whole journey. Very interesting. Okay, so you don't just run, you don't just climb, you don't just take kids, your kids kind of to do wicked stuff at the top of huge places. Um, but you fly as well, and I'm, I've talked to you about this, but I think um, let's let's go back down this road if you don't mind. And it's uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I've butchered the story a million times by telling it, but you were bringing this plane from somewhere to somewhere and um, you ran out of gas? No, well, technically yes, but no. We had fuel on board, couldn't access it. Oh, right. So this was... um, Oh gosh, twenty three or twenty four years ago, and I was getting—I uh, was a, a young pilot, and I was getting my hours up to try uh, to get into an airline. So I was flying small aircraft, and I had a job to ferry an airplane from San Francisco or from America back to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And the longest stretch of water is across from San Francisco to Hawaii, right. and it's twenty one hundred miles. Mm-hmm. And the aircraft's only designed to fly uh, three hundred miles. So what the engineers did is they pulled all the seats out of it and they put these big massive fuel tanks inside the right. inside the aircraft. Well, cut a long story short, that system, that ferry system malfunctioned. Wow. The wrong size feeder hose got used oh, no. uh, and it wasn't flow checked properly and stuff that we couldn't really control as pilots. Uh, we had to trust the engineers that mm. done it properly. And we, um, so consequently, we got the aircraft, uh, checked it like we were told to, didn't pick up on what was going, what, uh, that they'd installed the wrong size um, hose because we couldn't check the flows from the ferry tank. Um, and then, yeah, we got airborne. Uh, when, the, um, when the tanks were full, the flows were huge, but when they got down, or well, the fuel flow was huge, when it got down to a low level, then they weren't very good at all. Mm. Uh, you'd get the fuel eventually, but uh, you know, not in the time you needed. And we got past halfway, and then that's when we realised that the, f- the fuel wasn't flying as it should. So we ended up one hour offshore uh, from Hawaii with... Three hours, I mean, three hours fuel on board, and mm. we just couldn't access it. Wow. I mean, can you imagine it? It's like <laughs> it's uh, having food right there and you're starving, right? And exactly. are you guys, because someone has to stay and fly, or can you just let it fly and you're both trying to work it out? How does that work? No, it had no. we had no autopilot, oh. so one guy had to fly, and then I, I got down the uh, back of the aircraft and I crawled across the top of the fuel tanks. And I cut the fuel lines at the back and transferred fuel onto the front tank, which seemed to be flying a little bit better. Mm. But we couldn't keep up with the demand of the engines. True. We had to, um, we put out a mayday call. Uh, now, I tell you what, if you're going to crash anywhere, the best place to crash is in America. True. They have got some wicked gear. Mm-hmm. They sent out, in those days, this was late 90s, mm. they uh, sent out two F-15 fighters, a C-130 Hercules, uh, and they came and found us. But they couldn't change our predicament. Is it uh, when you're sending out the Mayday call, are you trained to just keep it calm? Are you just following a procedure or are you like, hey man, <laughs> quick, we're going, you know, it ain't going well. I guess it's a procedure, isn't it? Well, you think, you, you know, you think about it because, you know, all the radio calls, you, you think about what you're going to say before you say it. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we were trained, but the big thing that saved our lives is we weren't afraid to ask for help. Mm. So we put the Mayday call out early. Right. And when I spoke to the colonel that rescued us, he said that they never get to an aircraft like us mm. because they normally don't put out a distress call until it's too late. And we're the first 350 aircraft to crash off that coast. A thousand people have been killed and we were the first wow. to survive. Is that right? Yeah. You don't know that though in the moment? That's something you learn later? No, or? no, we knew that. Oh, damn. <laughs> we knew that before. Have you seen, is it Sully? Is, have you seen yeah. that film? Yeah. When you watch a kind of one of those films, are you like, oh, yeah, that's right. 
or yeah that was re- done really well and yeah. that was done so well with tom hanks and i mean I'm, i i don't know them personally mm. but and apparently sullenberg was right there mm. um telling them no it's not how it went this is how it went mm. and this language mannerisms everything but it was done really well it's a great film so back to you guys in that real moment so how long before you realized you were out of gas and you had to kind of ditch is it so it was probably when we realised we couldn't access all the fuel, it was probably maybe three or four hours before we actually went into the water. Damn, so that's quite a long time, eh? Yeah. And you're yeah. like contemplating everything. <laughs> yeah. So, and if you thought about the consequences of what was going to happen, it was mm. too it was too overwhelming. So I wouldn't talk about, I wouldn't think about it. I'd think about being a really professional pilot. Yeah. And that gave me some comfort. True. And I, and I use that all through my life. So when mm. I... When you when I get overwhelmed, everyone gets overwhelmed. Um, you know, on your trips or your you know whatever I was doing, especially with adventures, mm. I just go back to basics. Yeah, just go back to basics. When I was overwhelmed with these seven marathons, seven days on seven continents, I would go back to the basics of looking after my food, eating mm. my you know Usana uh, yeah. drinks, my nutrition, and then you find again this momentum and mm. off, off you go and I did that in that aircraft as well and that's I guess the key right is just go back to the basics I know that sounds really simple but probably some of the hardest things to do when you actually have to go back to the basics eh? you know just trust you know go through the small things you know I think um, I don't know it'd be interesting if you got say an ex-Navy SEAL mm. or an SAS soldier who's allowed to talk mm. I wonder in battle what happens when everything goes out the window and you know the, the battle's on whether mm. what they do because I'm sure they would just go back to their basics as well so the plane goes down um, is it really hard when you land on water so, I mean, imagine, imagine you're sitting there, you're 10 feet above the water, mm. you've got all this fuel behind you, but, Fire. and you look out the front of the aircraft and it's pitch black mm. and you can't see the difference between the sea or where the sea meets the sky because it's so black. That's what we were faced with. Far out. You can't, um, there's one flare, uh, in the end there was one flare and you actually need, you know, they drop flares on the water for us. You'd need two flares to get depth perception to be able to land the aircraft mm. in, that, in that sort of scenario. So at that stage, I pushed the thrust levers up and said, go around. And we started to turn. And as we turned, everything was going wrong because we didn't have any shoulder harnesses on mm-hmm. our, on our um, seat belts. Right. So a, what, just like a... We just had a little tiny lap belt. Damn. Yeah. We had a one-off dispensation to fly it into New Zealand mm-hmm. like that. And so we um, ended up, uh, we knew we were going to get knocked unconscious and, <sighs> and drown. So what we had done is we'd opened the doors on the, on the cockpit. And as we turned, and we jammed the doors open with our boots. And as we turned, the skipper's boot fell out and his door slammed shut. Oh, far out. Yeah. So I, um, he passed control to me. And but there's no altimeter on my side. There's only altimeter on his side. So I'm trying to fly on the instruments, pitch black, probably 20 feet above the above the sea, mm. and he's scrabbling around trying to put his boot in. Far out. Uh, we lined it back up, and then basically we came down, swapped control again, I, and I put my head out the window slightly into the jet, into the slipstream. We're probably going 80 knots, which is 100 miles an hour, and I waved them down, and then we, he, I looked and I said, we've got to do it. And he said, I know, and I screamed at him as loud as I could. We had to close the thrust levers, and he did. And the aircraft hit the water, and the nose pitched forward, 
and it drove the cockpit probably uh, 10 feet, well, probably 20 feet underwater. Damn. And then it sat there. But the impact, I mean, you know, if I can tell you about the impact, it was, it shredded my clothes, like shredded all my clothes. It's, uh, I've got my seat snapped and it's a 25G seat and it broke off the, off the mountings and crushed me into the control column. And then my head got locked back onto the headrest and then I remember swallowing water and my, my arm was a bit sore and when I looked down and I've got a normal watch mm. and uh, you know, if you uh, push it really hard it'll probably go up to you know, a couple of inches past your wrist yeah. that was blown up past my bicep and stuck under my arm done really? it really yeah whoa so the, the force was just ginormous and so I'm we're now pinned underwater the tail sticking straight up mm. and I remember just scrabbling trying to get out and I couldn't get out and then probably after oh, a good 45 seconds, I remember this very calm thought that came across my mind that if I simply relaxed and took a huge breath of water, I'd be at peace. Yeah. And so then I sort of just closed my eyes and then relaxed and then just took this breath, expecting it to be water, and it was actually air, and the aircraft had bobbed out of water oh, at that millisecond. Dude. So it was a bit... bit freaky it's like uh it's like watching because i've heard you tell that story but i don't know man there's something interesting it's like watching your favorite movie again and it's just horrible for you because i guess you got to kind of relive this for all of us but no it's healthy because uh I'm, yeah sure you know in the first couple of years i had a couple mm. of nightmares but mm. but i think the, the more you talk about it the, the more you know it hasn't really affected my life I've, mm. I've managed to overcome it and talking about things like that is great yeah i think is and I mean, there's lots of people out there have uh, life-changing or life-threatening events, mm. and you know that's how I handle mine by talking about it, so it didn't define my life. Yeah, which is really good. Oh man, that's intense. All right, Mike. Well, I think we should kind of wrap it up because I've taken you down that deep dark hole, and we've got to come back out. But hopefully, everyone's kind of got something out of that chat. I mean. What would you like everyone to take away? You know, like that's the bit that no one does. We try and wow everyone and we give clickbait and there's content. But if some, if the everyday person watching this, you know, could do one thing today from all your experiences, the ups and downs, what's something that you'd recommend that people, you know, either introduce into their lives or do something today? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, um, it's, it's a hard <laughs> one. And it, like, let's not underestimate it. These are hard <laughs> questions, right? Well, in a nutshell, I, if I was going to leave everyone with a thought, is I would like them to think about their Everest. What's their dream? Mm. Is it an old dream that they've put off? Is it a new dream that they want to get? Or is your dream something you don't know what it is yet? Mm. And go and explore that. We all have our own Everest inside of us. And it's up to us to go out, take risks uh, around that, around, around your dream and what's important to you. And just think about, yeah, what do I want my life to look like when I'm 95 and mm. I'm being interviewed by some sociology professor? What would <laughs> I be saying? Dude, so cool. Love the message. Uh, where can people come and follow you if they want to, you know, either engage in some of your talks or get you to talk to them? Like, what's the way to oh, kind of watch So, you? easiest way is uh, mikealsop.co.nz. Uh, mm -hmm. It's my website, and you can contact me through there. Or follow me on Instagram. I'm at uh, mikealsopnz. Love to see it. I'll follow you back. Sweet as. All right, let's land this plane. Thanks, dude, for joining me in my awesome. garage with my washing and my exercise bike that I haven't used. I should use that more often. And thanks to the audience for joining us for this chat cheers bro thanks buddy just quickly before i do my big ask let me tell you a bit about me
My name is Will Fleming and I'm almost 38 years old. I love my family and my job as a video creator. I'm slowly turning into a grumpy old man who can't tolerate how society is being oversimplified and undercomplicated because people can't be bothered looking up and saying hi. Get off my lawn. So my plan is to have more awesome conversations with amazing people inside a caravan built in a mobile podcast studio and that's where I need your help. <sighs> so let me break down my big idea a little more. It's a mobile podcast live stream caravan. Imagine a road with a caravan. And inside that caravan on a road is a podcast studio with two beautiful people. You see, we don't need more clickbait, short form, oversimplified, oversimplified, chicken nugget type content of one size fits all. What we need is long form, interesting content that puts the human back into the internet. But I need your help. I need your help, bro. And it all starts by building this mobile studio. And thanks to the magic of dad science, I've worked out exactly what I need. I need... One million dollars. I need you to help donate what you can to raise $10,000 to buy an old caravan, do it up, and invite you on a road trip of ideas that will blow your mind. The question I have is, will you back me up? Will you help me? If the answer is yes... Yes! 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 Then please click on my Give a Little page and donate what you can to make this dream come true. Do it! Just do it! Okay, catch you later.